Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinford, and today, continuing on our special mini-series of episodes on specific hot topics from our audience, we're going to analyze one of the coolest pillars of toughness, in my humble opinion, and that's psychological speed. Now, it's different from some of the other ones. These lessons are less about hanging on and more about moving on. So in other words, improving the speed that you can work under pressure and how quickly you can switch and pivot from being in a bad spot to being in a good spot. All of the great athletes who I've studied, everyone has this this darkness, or you call it this pain, that they're willing to keep touching. Some people retreat from the fire. And I think with the training, some people are willing to go towards the fire and stand in the fire. I still fight the anxieties and pressures because those are never going to go away. If you don't have those feelings, then either you're not human or you just don't care. Right, a deep drive to left field. Pilar at the wall, at the track, jumps and... Oh, no, he The most life-changing thing was accepting my brain as a body part because when I see my brain as a body part, everything makes sense. To start this episode, we're going to hear from one of the very first guests of the Toughness Podcast, Kevin Pillar, who's known for being some sort of Superman in professional baseball. He never thinks twice before running full speed into the outfield wall to catch the ball, and is tough enough to get hit in the face by a 94-mile-an-hour fastball and walk it off like nothing happened. Now, of course, to develop his tough mindset, Kevin had to learn how to put his emotions and fears aside and to do it as quickly as possible. Things changed from being a guy that had to prove everything wrong to let's just, you know, set the bar really high for myself and try to reach these, you know, maybe unrealistic goals to somewhere where I'm at right now as a, you know, seven year veteran where I don't really care about the things that people say about me on Twitter. I'm not out there trying to, to perform to anyone else's expectations, but my own, but I still fight the anxieties and pressures, but these are only the pressures that I put on myself because this is how I take care of my family and those are never going to go away. And I think to some degree, I think, you know, if you don't have those feelings, then either you're not human or, or you, you, don't know, care. you just don't care. So, you know, for, like you said, the, the people that are going to be listening to this, whether you're a 22 year old trying to, you know, move up in the ranks of the military, you're a, a businessman trying to, you know, do the best for his family. I think that's something that people need to understand that these are things that just never go away. It's just, we learn how to deal with them, maybe set them aside because I still feel the anxiety and pressure every single day I step on the field because one, I'm trying to reach these potentially unreachable goals that I've set for myself. And I think me and you have talked about rather than setting a, a bar, we set a range of goals that way we don't feel like we've never reached our goal. If we, you know, reach the very bottom, we still know we have a top, there's more to gain, but at least we have some, you know, we, 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 we feel accomplished that we reached something. So I think that's something I learned from you is setting a range of goals. Like every year I say, Hey, I want to hit between, you know, 15 and 45 home runs. Right. And if last year I hit 20, so like I feel accomplished, like, yeah, I reached my goal, but shit, I didn't reach my ultimate goal. So let's continue to work harder. Right. But yeah. I think it's just important that people to understand that it's good for me to talk to someone like you because I, 
all the, the, the stress, stress and anxiety that I put on myself now in my career is not driven by external stuff. I could get, get two fucks if I strike out three times in a game because it's baseball and it's really freaking hard to do. And usually the guy on the mound is probably better than I am. <laughs> and that shit's going to happen. The pressure I put on myself is I just want to be able to play this game as long as I can. I want to perform at a high level. I want my family to be proud of me. Um, I carry an army of people that root for me being one of the only kids to make it out of my area to the big leagues. And I, it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's an honor. It's, it's an honor to be that guy, but there are some stresses and anxieties that come with it because you do feel like there's so many people that, um, you know, almost living and dying with all your successes and your failures in this game. And I've gotten better at saying, I don't give a shit even about my parents. Like if I strike out three times and my dad's going to call me and be like, Oh, what a tough day at the yard. Be like, yeah, you can only imagine try stepping in my shoes, you know, <laughs> but like stop really trying to like, lit, like please people, but really just be satisfied with myself and take care of my family. And I think trying to dumb it down to the simplest terms of, what we've kind of mentioned is you're not always going to get the results, but I think if you can, you know, focus on the things that you can control, which are like being able to focus in on what you want to focus on, have a plan, have a set goal, you know, did I do all my prep work the day before, whether it was physically, mentally video, did I check all those boxes? And sometimes it's just not going to go your way. Sometimes you're going to make out. Sometimes you're going to go through these extended periods of times where you're not performing uh, at the level that you want to perform at. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Andy. You're, and you're a living paragon is the word that popped into my head, but I can just say example. You're, you, you, you walk the talk. And I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a oh. funny, quick funny story too. Like, because the idea of like, the, the idea of this whole stigma around mental health is still like making its way through sports. Like it's okay to ask for help and stuff, but, um, I started like it, it started happening and some of my friends now that I play with the Giants and some of the guys that are closer to me like will text me now too and there'd be times after really tough games rather than me like you know throwing shit or cussing or stuff I would guys would just see me in my locker I'd be sitting there and they'd be like what's wrong and I'd be like I'm just sad <laughs> like people, like it's just it's kind of like a I wouldn't say it's a joke but it was like my way of like maybe even dumbing it down the fact that we are human beings and we do yeah. get emotional over this game. And it's not like, you know, I wasn't having a, a, a mental breakdown because I went over four, but like I'm a human being and it's okay to be sad. So like it started as a joke and then people would start to like, someone would strike out in a big situation that comes sit next to me in the dugout instead of like losing their shit. You just, they would just look at me and be like, you know what? I'm sad. I'd be like, it's okay to be sad. Like, it's <laughs> like we're human. And when you hear that, it's probably not so amazing that this tough mindset has helped Pilar thrive through many tough and scary situations, both on and off the field. Even for a player that grinds as hard as he does, the fear of being injured and failing can still pop in your mind. But it all comes back to putting negative emotions aside and quickly focusing on the work and the task that's at hand. Now, it's not only the athletes that have to deal with insane amounts of pressure in these situations. A lot of tough decisions take place behind the scenes in pro sports way before the match starts. Some people might call it the battle in the boardroom. Now, if you're an NFL fan, you might know Mike Tannenbaum as an ESPN insider reporter or as the former New York Jets general manager 
or the Miami Dolphins executive VP of football. But the thing is, in 30 years now, working with top athletes and coaches across the league, he's had his own share of sweaty palms moments where his decisions were crucial make or break things that could decide the fate of an entire franchise. We're going to hear from him and fellow expert in the area of executive function, Scott Goldman, who's the performance psychologist at the Golden State Warriors. And they're going to talk about how GMs and executives also need to be mentally fit to make the best decisions in stressful scenarios in quick time, like a draft, for example. We lived that in a very uh, public way. Uh, Laramie Tunsil in 2016 was the number one player on our board and um unfortunately for him there was a video that came out you know soon before the draft that um was just bad timing he was a good person that made a mistake we had a good player at his position uh brandon albert and we did not need a left tackle and we're sitting there we're like there's no way the best player in the draft is going to be there at 13 anyway so you know we don't have to worry about it next thing you know it's nine it's 10 it's 11 it's like oh my gosh he may be there and we all kind of had this pit in the stomach. It was the first year uh, our management team was together. And so there was certainly like some breaking in feeling with that. So um, that became one of those situations, like you talk about high performance. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was a great lesson for me, great lesson for my kids, that in the most consequential moments, you want to fall back on your preparation. And we had a great area scout, a guy named Matt Winston, who had incredible information on Laramie Tunsil, who is a fantastic person, great teammate, loved football, had a great relationship with his family, and obviously was a good person that made a mistake. And in the most sort of like pressure-packed moment of uh, making a decision that could impact your franchise for years to come, we fell back on the most mundane, rudimentary, basic area report of, this guy loves football. He's a good person. And we're making this huge decision. And we're like, you know what? These other teams were certainly, you know, scared away by, you know, what was happening. And um, we, we, we felt great about our preparation and made what we thought was the best decision for us. Yeah, a fantastic example, very tangible example for people who follow the NFL. That will that will be clear on that memory. And it was and it was a huge buzz around that. Uh, that incident and the the subsequent drop in the in the standings for Laramie and and then the move that you guys made and it's and, and it struck me at the time as a uh, obviously a tangible thing that would reflect on a team poorly if it went south but it seemed to be a fairly short term move and so I'm interested Scott from from a psychological standpoint what's going on for executives like Mike and everyone else who's in that room and the owners and coaches who are involved in this decision weighing up what the public will say about this move and what the potential costs and embarrassment might be if we take the kid and it doesn't work out versus the longer term, trusting your process, okay, we're going to take the punt, excuse the punt, that Mike and co did with Laramie. So um, part of what I omitted from my career trajectory opus was that I spent six years working in a psychiatric hospital. And I bring it up now because... You said, hey, you know, the experience of life or death decision making, like I've actually been in a few life or death, like psychiatric riots, uh, more than a few suicidal, actively suicidal individuals who are in the midst of an attempt. And 
I would be curious to hear if emergency department physicians and other, you know, special operations and military would say something similar of what I experienced, which was, I actually found the life or death moment to have more clarity in vision and execution than the things that, and I will underline this word perceived life or death threat. So I actually think like the executives and the coaches that are deciding, should we go for it on fourth down? Should we select a guy who had a bad timed video be released? Like there is so much more discussion and debate because it's a perceived threat than an actual threat that I think in some ways almost makes it a more difficult decision. Yeah. It's a harder decision to pick a guy and yet the life-saving moment is a more significant or important decision. So I think there's an interesting paradox there. Yeah. Now going to answer your question specifically of like, so how do you help people? You know, I think a big part of it is about risk management, loss aversion, um, decision-making. So there's all kinds of literature in psychology about, you know, you know, choosing to lose versus, you know, it's like playing, not to lose versus playing to win, or when you've got two decisions, as you get closer to committing to one, it will start to look less attractive than the one that you're moving further away from. So I think that there's a lot of elements to helping people go through the process that psychology can play. I think one of the biggest ones is the confirmation bias that comes with excitement. You know, so I think there's two things. One is confirmation bias, where all of a sudden we only look at the data that seems to align with what we already believe. I love this guy. And then the other one is group polarization, where somebody in the room goes, I love this guy for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then somebody else jumps on that and goes, well, I love him for one, two, three reasons. And then before you know it, you've got the whole room believing that this is Superman and you're not looking at, you know, what are his kryptonites? and stuff like that. And so I think being mindful of really sound psychological training can help guide these folks to making well-informed decisions. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. That is what started me on the journey of giving myself permission to be, you know, mentally injured and to put the work in to get back. So damn proud. Now, an extreme case where cognitive speed is crucial is when you suffer from PTSD. In the first season of the show, we were truly honoured to talk with many people that put their life on the line to keep us civilians safe. And we've heard stories from the Marines, from Fire Department of New York, and even, in this case, the Police Department of a somewhat calm Canadian town when a life and death situation strikes, and if you're not prepared, trauma is going to be part of your life. That's what happened with Lane Douglas Hunt, a sergeant with decades of experience in multiple roles across the Victoria Police Department in BC, Canada, who, after surviving a near-fatal attack while on street patrol, she discovered down the track that hidden scars may not heal by themselves. Thankfully, she crossed paths with Brian Willis, who you'll also hear from here, who's a former policeman 
who now specialises in training officers to prepare exactly for the type of situations that Lane found herself in. My job was everything to me at that time. You know, I didn't have any balance in my life. I was obsessed with work, with, with trying out for the team, with being on the team. And so I was forced to go to the doctor. The doctor immediately diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was in a pool of pity after that. And then Brian actually uh, reached out to me after that and offered me a lifeline. He threw me a, a life preserver and I, and I took it. And he invited me to Calgary where I got to listen to some incredible speakers, uh, Jared Reston and Bob Delaney. And that is what started me on the journey of giving myself permission to be you know, mentally injured and to put the work in to get back. And, and, um, and I did, and now I'm you know, living my best life with PTSD and it's, it's totally okay. So it's that's Brian, it. it's all Brian. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and Brian, I'll, I'll jump to you in a second, but what you've just described there, again, I'm going to thank you because that's a really um, tough thing to just recount, not just the acute incident, but everything you had to go through afterwards to get to the point that you are now living your best life. <laughs> and, and I, it really reinforces that dichotomy of two different ideas or, or mental models of toughness. One being, you push through a feeling until it goes away, which sometimes works until it doesn't yes. because some things won't go away. And, so, and and we're not going to be able to be feel good all the time. Now, this might be a two hour thing and you can't feel good for this next performance. Just get it done. So cool. And there are other things where you're like, I might carry this for the next 10 years plus. And if that's going to be the case, how do, what, what do I need to adjust in my approach in order to be able to still live my best life? As you just said, I'm living my best life with PTSD. Really, really great description. And, and again, so grateful that you've shared it. Brian, to you now who spotted it, as, uh, as Lane described her little breakdown, not so little breakdown, when you see someone like that reacting to one of, during one of your sessions or, or around you, given what you've seen and experienced yourself as an officer, but now giving training, this is a really interesting question that I didn't think I'd be able to ask, but it's it's really pertinent to ask because a lot of the listeners who tune in, there are some who are going to be going through their own stuff. There are some who are wanting to learn how they can handle stuff better. There are others who are just curious cats and they just like hearing amazing stories like Lane just shared. But some of us will be in contact with another person. We'll have someone close to us who we see some of these things in. We know our friend or our partner or our teammate needs help, needs support. But because of some of the prejudices and the biases that Lane's described, it's hard to even have that conversation. How do you reach out to, I mean, you did it to a stranger, but how does, talk, tell us how you went about doing that to Lane to make it okay to, for her to begin her journey to recovery and how you might suggest people do that to people they are in, they do have a relationship with where they can support them, but people don't even know how to start that conversation. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting thing. I think part of it is just acknowledging that uh, whatever you're feeling is perfectly normal. Whatever you're feeling is okay. Uh, I have a lot of officers that'll come up to me after presentations and say, "Well, I was I was experiencing this, or I'm feeling this, and is that normal?" And my answer is always yes. So if you're feeling it, it's normal for you. 
and it's different for everybody. And so I think the key is, is just to, first of all, you know, let the person know that you're not there to solve their problem, that you're there for them um, and that it's okay what you're experiencing. It's okay. It's completely natural. Um, you know, and, and we might think at the time that it's an unnatural response, but it's completely natural. And, it's, and what's happened and the challenge for uh, in public safety, for law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, is that it wasn't just that event. So, I mean, that was a big event in Lane's life. But Lane had been a police officer for, uh, she said, about two and a half years so it's two and a half years of secondary traumatic stress. So it's two and a half years of being exposed to other people's pain, suffering, and trauma. Going to the fatal traffic crashes, dealing with the child abuse victims, dealing with the rape victims, telling families that a loved one has been killed in a car crash murdered. And so what officers are dealing with is they're constantly exposed to other people's pain, suffering, and trauma. And if we don't make it okay to get the help we need on a regular basis, to talk to somebody, to access or utilize peer support, and Lane's very involved in peer support now, then what officers are going to do, or other people in any profession, uh, we see this in nurses, we see this in doctors, we see it in paramedics, firefighters, military, law enforcement, uh, is they're just going to keep stuffing it down, stuffing it down, stuffing it down. So if you think about it, if you've ever watched shows on hoarders or uh, you know, police officers have been in hoarders' houses. Uh, that's what we are. We're hoarders of emotional trauma. Um, at home, we take the garbage out all the time so it doesn't build up. But at work, we stuff it down, stuff it down, stuff it down. And now we get a major event like Lane was thrust into. And now on top of that, you have people that are saying crap like, uh, you know, women shouldn't be cops or women shouldn't be out there on their own or whatever. Uh, my take on it is when that individual went out that day uh, with the, the design, the goal to kill a cop is he made a massive mistake by picking Lane. Uh, there's a lot of cops he could have picked that he would have prevailed in that violent encounter and they would have been going to an officer's funeral. But he flat out picked the wrong cop because he picked somebody that he made the mistake of looking at this young female officer and thinking this will be easy. Uh, and he was not aware of all of the training and all of the preparation, mental, physical and training and preparation that she'd put in to prepare for an event. And that's what allowed her to prevail in the event. And then what we have learned in the intervening years is that uh, we need to make sure that we look after people afterwards and that uh, we have uh, culturally sensitive professionals that we can send them to. Because I've talked to officers who said, you know what, I went and met with this psychologist because it was mandated by my department and the psychologist had a breakdown here in my story. So that doesn't do anything for an officer when the, the mental health professional you're dealing with has a breakdown. So I think that's, I mean, we need like, to find cultures. It's an important point there that I think the, the listeners should recognize and, and be okay with is that while, while we're talking here about talking to someone, letting it out, getting support, going to share some of the trauma and work through it, it's not necessarily always with a psychologist whilst getting professional help is definitely recommended for some severe things. At first, it could just be peer support because in some ways for some of these events that are not normal and that are incredibly traumatic, that are very hard to understand for people who haven't been there before. It's often better to be shared with another colleague who's actually seen it, dealt with it, 
seeing someone else fail at handling it so we can talk with knowledge as opposed to just raw, wow, that happened. That's like, that's pretty full on. And so really important to stress that just because we're saying seeking help, it doesn't mean you have to go to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I'm not saying not to do that because that's absolutely beneficial. But sometimes the first step is just talking to someone who knows what it's like. Absolutely. And I think Bob, or, uh, Lane mentioned listening to Bob Delaney speak. So Bob, uh, back in the early 70s, went deep undercover, infiltrated the mafia in New York and New Jersey, lived that life for three years, came out, spent another 10 years in the troopers uh, dealing with the court cases, and then went on to have a very successful career, spent 25 years as an NBA referee basically hiding out in the open. But one of the things Bob talks about is the importance of peer-to-peer counseling, talking to somebody else. Now, here's one of the challenges for law enforcement is that Elaine mentioned that uh, she's told you're not allowed to talk to anybody about this because of the pending court case. So it's a balance. So Elaine needs to be able to talk to me about what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, help to normalize that process without doing the normal cop thing and wanting to find out exactly what happened and getting into the details of the event. So it's, it can be a, a difficult challenge, and it's an additional challenge for law enforcement professionals. It can take up to two years. Let's say Lane had shot that individual, um, and he died of those, those injuries. It can take years to, for an officer to get told that you're not going to get prosecuted for murder, for shooting that individual. So in that entire time, this is hanging over them. They're told you can't talk to anybody. Um, and they're concerned about, am I going to be prosecuted or charged with murder? So there's a whole bunch of different elements here that in a lot of cases are unique to uh, the law enforcement profession. Yeah. But I think the, the biggest thing people can do is just say, okay, uh, this is what I've noticed. What do you need? Uh, what can I do to help? Uh, are you all right? And then to avoid, uh, you know, giving, trying, me trying to solve Lane's problem. Uh, probably what Lane needs is for me to just listen a lot and then to let her know that, you know what, it's, it's okay to feel that way. It's completely natural and normal for you after what you've experienced to experience what you're experiencing now. Yeah. So understand that uh, what you're having is a very human response to something that is not part of most people's human experience. Trauma is, is a normal part of the law enforcement experience uh, to experience trauma and other people's trauma, but it's not a normal part of the human experience. And so we have these expectations that law enforcement officers can do superhuman things, uh, but they're human beings doing a very challenging job. So we just need to keep that human piece in mind all the time. Man, even months down the track here, I still get goosebumps when I remember Lane Douglas Hunt narrating that unfortunate experience on the show. You could totally hear in her voice and see in her body language how something that happened more than 10 years ago can still impact you on this very day. But she is a fantastic example of the fact that seeking help is never a sign of weakness and actually it's one of the best ways to bounce back faster from negative events. Speaking of bouncing back, Eight-time Olympic medalist Apollo Ono believes that performers that really stand out in their arenas almost always have experienced some kind of trauma in their journey, and instead of giving up, they've actually used their negative experiences as a reminder to grind even harder and learn how to move on quicker. It's definitely true for Apollo, who had a bumpy road on his way to the top as a short track speed skater. I look at all of the great athletes who I've studied. Everyone has this, this darkness 
or this, or you call it this pain that they're willing to keep touching, right? Instead of hiding it away huh. and not touching the pain, they're actually willing to touch it and they use it as a lever. And that comes in the form of whether you look at Michael Jordan, whether you look at Michael Phelps, whether, whoever that person is, I believe there's some deep, deep trauma there, micro trauma, whatever it is, that is a, the driving force. And it can be as simple as so insecure, they have to assert dominance over everyone else to have that level playing field of, I feel good enough. It can be as right. simple as that. I've just seen a pattern in every athlete that I've ever known have some semblance of that. Right. And for me, it was, I had a deep fear of failure, uh, partially because of what happened prior to me not making that Olympic team, but then also not making that Olympic team. That pain psychologically at the age of 15 was deeply ingrained in mm. my soul. Mm. And I never wanted to feel that pain ever again because it was almost as if I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And so that began this pro So when I look at an athlete, I want to know what happens when, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't care what they look like when they're fresh and they're peaked. I want to know, show me what you look like on your worst day, under the worst conditions, under the worst environment. And I want to see how they show up. And I, it may, it may not be natural, but over time, I believe you can train that. And some people are naturally, they go towards the fire. Uh -huh. Some people retreat from the fire. And I think with the training, you can equal that playing field to some degree where some people are willing to go towards the fire and stand in the fire for and a long period of time. And you're saying training as in like, I'm, I'm picturing touching that pain, like you said, is one thing. Doesn't it like wear off? Doesn't it go away if I keep tapping into that? Eventually, I drain my fuel of I'm not scared anymore. I don't have that fear. Or does it, your, your fear never goes away? Well, my fear has never gone away. Okay. I, I, can, I can speak from experience. My fear is still there. I've just, my relationship with that fear has drastically changed where hmm. it hasn't become so all consuming that it can potentially be toxic. So, you know, the business of sport cares about nothing else except for your performance on paper. Right. In its essence, which is a whole new thing that is is that we're we're unpacking and talking about today, um, I, I'm talking about the training of the consistency of what happens. So they always say, you know, a fighter is when you push them or you punch them. What they what do they naturally do? If they back way off, most likely this is this. By the way, I have no idea if this is true. This is a friend of mine who's a boxer told me this. Um, and if they back away, then the, maybe that person wasn't meant to be a fighter. If they actually go towards you, that's the person you want to start training. And so I just believe that maybe sport and short track speed skating, by the way, which is not like a, you know, this is a new sport. It's not like it's huge, like soccer or track and field. But I still, I still think the mental side of the sport is still the most important. And because mm. I've just seen what happens when you're dialed in mentally. It, it, the, por the, the performance increases are so... They're so big that they cannot be, they can't be disregarded. I mean, I, I felt them in my own life. When I wasn't dialed in in sport with all the tools, I wouldn't perform well. When I would be and not have all the tools and I'd be sick and I would be tired and I wouldn't be peaked and I had equipment problems, but I was in the zone, I was still able to win. 
you can't deny that. I mean, I'm, I'm operating at 50% capacity. I can still win. So there's something here in this between our ears that we're starting to get and understand and measure the power. I think we're just scratching the surface. Right. I feel that we are just, I feel like there's so, we are at the tip of the iceberg and there's so much depth there of power and strength that can be derived that, um, uh, that's what's exciting moving forward. Like the athletes in 50 years are going to be pretty spectacular. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you mentioned there a, a couple of times you said the business of sports and the fact that your your own approach and development to this part of your game, of, of your performance, you credit a lot of your success to it, right? But just taking it away from sports, because a lot of listeners may not be athletes, right? There are going to be plenty of people who use their body to do their work, but maybe not at the level of a, of a short track speed skater, right? If, if you were in a boardroom or, you know, you do your work as a consultant to businesses and if you're talking to a surgeon, you're talking to a musician, talking to someone in the military, like, do you think that what you've, well, not even do you think, have you applied the same approach to your business decisions? Because you're an investor as well. You're a New York Times best-selling author. Like you've done some stuff other than being a badass speed skater. Has that carried over? Does it apply just as well off the rink for you, off the ice? I believe some of the attributes are transferable across any career path. There's many skill sets that I didn't have naturally when I retired as an athlete that I learned the hard way. And I've had some great wins and I've had some really, really bad losses. I think the difference today is my ability to manage those losses are totally different. I just, I look at it from a different perspective. I, I enjoy the process of pursuing a new venture, a new opportunity. So when I talk to, and I'm in a boardroom talking to someone, um, most of the time, you know, they're dealing with all these ancillary stresses in their life that detract away from their ability to become truly present and maximize their real ability to be at their best. And that's true, right? So we have short kind of small snippets of this experiences throughout our lives, but we aren't able to replicate them because of many different variables, family, life, money, stresses, all these, ta- all, all these, all these, I call them taxes in your life that always are kind of grabbing away at your whole, your whole pie. Mm-hmm. And the, the one way that I have felt that has been very powerful was just training my mind and being intentional in a way that has a routine that I've created a new form of habits and new form of human behavioral patterns. And that can be, I know what I need to do as Apollo Ono, even though I'm 10 years retired, I know what I need to do in terms of lifestyle Mm -hmm. that helps me be my best in the boardroom, presenting to that surgeon, to that executive, standing on stage, talking to a group. There's certain things that I know that I hold very, very sacred to me, routine in the morning, routine in the evening, and then overall mindset, having gut checks to ensure, are you doing the things necessary to give you maximum performance there? And then also, is it fun, right? And and this is something that I've kind of reintroduced into my life again, was it's very easier to kind of squint your, your, your brow and get very laser focused in. At some point, you have to enjoy elements of that process. And if you don't, that's when I think you start to get burned out and the intensity starts to flicker, which is what you don't want. You want the intensity to to kind of go like this in these waves, but um, 
those who are constantly pressing on the button of pain, reminding themselves that they aren't good enough or they have to show up or whatever that is that's driving them, that makes them so obsessed, uh, it can get tiresome and wear out. And that's why I think that this, you know, like anything else, the mind and the body are elements where they need to have rest and recovery, short sprints, long endurance races. It's just like any other element that you're training. You, it, it can't just be pedal to the metal, full gas, 24-7. I mean, you will just lose the intensity. It, mm. it, it's, it, I call it the magic, right? Like when, when something happens to you in your life and you're either so pissed off or you're so disrupted and sad, it forces and enacts real transformation and change. Well, shit, man, why did you have to have that pain to do that back then? Because you can't keep repeating that feeling, that that failure or that loss or that pissed off feeling. You, you, we know people in all of our lives who are just angry and they've been angry for a long time, right? But it's not like it's consistently progressing them towards a different era. Right. So I just believe that there's nothing wrong with having that emotional state in those times, but like anything, it is a tool. Being selective and deliberate about when you access that. Yeah, and then being open about it, like knowing and recognizing, hey, this is my pain. This is why I am the way I am. I don't have to be that way. I can consistently change. I'm intentionally, deliberately enacting certain processes and frameworks in my life so that I can be at my best. Because yeah. when I'm at my best, I feel better. My family's good. My friends are good. And that's the life I think that we all want in, in the end. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... Pressure is a privilege, and that's a really good feeling to have is pressure and this anger if you don't win because it's going to push me. So damn proud. Now, it's not only the more famous on-field examples of sports that epitomize the ability to quickly pivot from one thing to another, but as esports competitions grow bigger and bigger, the pressure those athletes are under is growing exponentially. That reality is even tougher if you're a female trying to find your place in what many believe is a male-oriented industry. And that is definitely the case for Emily Garrido, otherwise known by her screen name as Emilite. And she's best known as captain of the five-time world champion esports team, Dignitas. But she's also a life and death nurse on her day-to-day -day job. The funny thing is to thrive in both of these arenas, Emilite has had to learn how to channel the negative feelings into something that gives her a boost just when she needs it the most. I feel like as competitors, we're always on that fight mode for the adrenaline fight or flight. Like we never are going to run away from a, a situation. Um, and that's not one of the reasons why I love competing is that's one of my favorite. It's not an emotion. It's one of my favorite um, ways to handle things is the fighting one. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. I don't know how to word it, but it's yeah, no, true. No. Like anger is my funnest emotion. I think it's such a fun, <laughs> fun way to handle things. Uh, if I can say. That. Oh, you absolutely can. That's such a cool way to put it. Anger is my funnest emotion. It is and, very and fun. The reason, the reason I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down is because there's a couple of things. So in the psychology world, depending on what school you were schooled in, some of them talk about approach behaviors. And we kind of spoke about this with your group of like, Okay, things might be shit, but you can do two things. You can either 
do behaviors that try and avoid the bad feelings, or you can do things that will move you towards better feelings. Mm. The bad feelings are still going to be there. You're going to feel anger. You can't make anger go away unless you avoid what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. unless you get out of the fire, right? And so I hear you say that and it kind of it, it's, <laughs> it's um, comforting for me because it sounds like oh. you've actually ingrained it. But there's also the, uh, the element of um, being able to take your emotion and play emotional judo with it almost, like that uh, negative emotions aren't bad unless we, we treat them like bad. Like anger can be really good. Anger can be invigorating. It can light mm-hmm. you up. Now, used the wrong way, obviously, it can be really bad, but it's just energy. Every emotion mm-hmm. is just energy, and all it is is, okay, what am I going to do with that energy? I definitely feel like pressure is a privilege and that's a really good feeling to have is pressure and this anger if you don't win because it's going to push me a little bit extra to go and push past whatever feeling I'm feeling to try to get that win. And (laughs) when you're talking about like, you know, the, the puck's about to drop on the floor. Like that's us when it's about to go in the first game, you want to start off strong and you want the other team to be shaking in their boots. So starting off strong is so important in esports because our game is so mental. You want to get in their heads early on. Mm. And I, I've heard you say, um, anger or aggression or adrenaline like now that you've mentioned it explicitly i've heard it coming out like five or six times right i want to i want to grab on that because it is really cool uh a it's unusual to hear from uh you've got such a petite voice and you're (laughs) such a sweet girl that you're like yeah but i want to crush him um the uh so it's 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 a nice dichotomy but it's not unusual to hear that from elite performers and and here's one of the other things that i wanted to mention before in a lot of the research around uh, elite performers, let's say we, we did one study that was over, uh, I think, eight teams in baseball, so a bunch of different athletes, and they were like, oh, what were they rated when we drafted them? And then by the time they made it to the majors, how were they? Like some of them flopped and some of them popped. And what we did by like digging right into the data was we found two or three things mentally that actually predicted whether someone was going to, what they would say, return on the investment of the draft. So we spent a first round pick on them. They should pay us back an all-star. That's, that's what we should expect to do with that pick, right? And what we found was the number one predictor was competitiveness, not how focused they could be, not how gritty they were. All these things were important, but the number one predictor was how competitive they were. And in particular, here's a really cool bit for nerds like me and for ultra competitors <laughs> like you is that it was their ability to, regardless of the scoreboard and regardless of whether they were going to get recognised, they just wanted to keep fighting. They, and and not, not about grit, like for goals. It's like right now, if we're playing table tennis, I might be behind 19 to zero, but I'm going to still be just as engaged in the next point. And if anything, I'm going to be more engaged because I'm angry that I'm losing and I want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so it's the approach to continue co- to compete as opposed to, oh, screw this, I'm throwing my tennis racket and I'm out of here. <laughs> which I wanted to highlight because it, it, it's really you talking about the way you handle your anger and that, that it's actually you view it as a good thing. That's a really unique way to view it, but it can be the game changer. It, it, uh, let me start off by saying it has not always been like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I 
I am very, very competitive. And, you know, if I lose a game when, when I was younger, I lost a very important game and I did break my hand um, from punching a wall. Your hand? I was about to say, how many consoles have you broken? How many controllers? My you hand, broke your hand. My hand. I broke my hand. Like I said, like, ang- I have to be able to handle that anger. Like, there is a certain level to it. Um, now that I'm getting older, I've I've learned to deal with it. But when I was younger, I did punch a wall and I broke my hand um, right before a big tournament. So I didn't tell my team actually that I broke my hand for a while. And I show up to the tournament and they're like, what is that on your hand? <laughs> so I had a, a cast that I could take on and off. I told the doctor I, I didn't want a, a hard cast. So, but I didn't want to make excuses for me not playing that. So I still played. I still showed up even with a broken hand. And we won the tournament too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to handle that anger is something I had to learn along the way. It's not something like I cannot, I can't sit here and lie to you and say I was good with it from the start because I wasn't. Um, but now I'm, like you said, like I'm realizing it's, it's what pushes me. Like the anger is good. I have to be able to handle it from a level. It's what really it keeps me from not giving up when we're down. It, it keeps me motivated. It's something that's good for in-game and my competitiveness, but I have to be able to control it. <laughs> mm. What happens for you if you're not angry? Like what? Because I think of my own journey as an athlete and I was super pissed between the age of maybe 16 and 19. And that was my super acceleration phase, got drafted in the first round. Like it really drove me. And then I kind of like, oh, I'm pretty good now. And I feel like my edge went away a little bit. It came back pretty quick because there were some other setbacks. But if you're not angry, are you not as good? Oh, that's tough to answer. Uh, No, not necessarily. Because sometimes a game could be we're just smashing the other team. So I'm going to be calm. I don't need to use all of my emotions when we're just smacking a team, you know? Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. So it, it really just depends on the situation. Um, and uh, my teammates are all different. So I have to be able to talk to them all differently. Some of them take anger as well. Like, I'm like, come on guys. Like we work too hard for this to go down without a fight, you know, and others can't handle that. So I have to be able to talk to each one person differently. So as a team captain, um, I have to remember, uh, the situation being able to adapt. It's so important, whether Mm. you're a competitor or not, even in real life, you have to be able to adapt with what's around you. And that right there is a really important aspect of developing toughness. Sometimes we can waste so much time and energy trying to fight back negative traits of ourselves that we end up tired and not focused on the important battles in life. And sometimes even layering extra amounts of guilt on ourselves because we think we should be able to block that stuff out. Of course, it takes years of self-knowledge and mental prep to use feelings like anger for the positive but Emma Lead is a great example of someone who's been able to do just that. And now last but not least in this episode, a personal favorite of mine. We've heard some great insights from performers who've used their negative feelings as a way to achieve their goals. But what if you achieved your biggest dream and those bad thoughts and feelings were still there? Now that's exactly what happened to Alexi Pappas. The Greek-American runner got so burnt out after competing in the Rio Olympics that she started to develop a serious case of depression. To make things worse, instead of acknowledging what was going on inside her mind, she gave 110% of herself to more physical preparation. And it was really thanks to Alexi's father, who noticed something was a little off with her, 
that she was able to pivot and eventually pull herself out of that deep, dark hole and seek some help and get a hold on her mind. Taking a step back from the Olympics, I think that my understanding of mental health, my understanding of what had happened to my mom was really limited and challenging because when she died by suicide, I thought, you know, the narrative that I was told was that she was just so sick that she had to go and she was unhelpable. And what that meant to me as a child was that, well, I better not ever be anything like her because I don't want to be unhelpable and I don't want to have to go. And so I spent so much of my life chasing these outward facing accomplishments to simply tick the boxes for myself that I was successful and happy and okay, because I didn't want to die. And I didn't understand how someone could go from being okay to not being, to being not okay. And to being not okay in a way that was unsolvable, which is just my understanding of her situation based on the narrative that I've heard and the narrative that I crafted. And so when I got to the Olympics, which is a peak that nobody prepares, I think for the moment after, because if you did, you might not get there in the first place. Mm-hmm. I panicked a little bit because I wanted to know, well, first of all, I think I thought that I would feel this thing that you expect to feel at a peak where you feel complete and you do, you feel incredible. It's a dream come true, but you can never solve an internal problem with an external solution. So there always will be, if you're chasing, you know, running away from a trauma or whatever it was that I was doing, there's always going to be that feeling of like incompletion because it's not a really viable solution. And when I was done with the Olympics, I felt like I was at this cliff and needed to know what was next. And I needed to know yesterday and I didn't know. And there were a series of changes that I made in my life in the course of a month from moving to changing coaches, to changing events up to the marathon, to I experienced, I was going through sponsor negotiations. There was a lot of stress and it felt like a little cliff, like a big cliff really. And I didn't navigate it very well because any feelings of anxiety that I was having, which were tremendous, I pushed away because I associated those as indications that I was behaving like my mother or being like her, which I didn't want to be. And so I kind of rejected any kind of post-Olympic depression as a possibility for me and therefore made it even worse. And it wasn't until my dad, months into this episode, saw through the phone, really, that I was not okay and made me get help, that I got help and understood that I was sick or I was mentally injured and that my doctor was like, it's just like a physical injury where you can fall down and scrape your knee and, and your brain can have a scrape on it too. And it can heal, but it's going to take a long time. And that was really the epiphanal moment in my life where I realized that it was an injury and that I could be okay again, but I didn't grow up understanding that these injuries were injuries. And I didn't understand that if they ever happened, that I would be okay. It was important to accept certain things as truths, like that I wasn't going to feel better for a really long time to have the ability to wake up every day and not be surprised by my pain anymore, but focus on my actions. So probably toughness is also the ability to 
to suspend your feelings in moments and just focus on your actions because your feelings, at least the way that I see it and the way I was told, your actions change first, then your thoughts, then your feelings in that order only. And so probably toughness is the ability to to give more credit and more attention to the actions than the feelings. Yeah. And accept that the feelings will change because of the actions. Love that. That's a really cool way. I think you kind of hinted at it before when you were saying, you know, if there's a red flag, clearly you pull yourself out. If you've got incredible pain, it's getting worse. That's not something that we want to encourage people to push through, but almost accepting not the red flags, but the orange flags. This is kind of uncomfortable. This is something I'm going to have to push through. And the fact that it rings true, I remember we had Apollo Ono on the show a while back and he talked about the fact that he only got really good when he started to accept and embrace a certain type of pain because that was where he got his power from that made him push a little harder in certain races, et cetera. Obviously, significant pain, particularly whether it's physical or mental and emotional, is not something we want to encourage people to go out of their way and find or to put up with for too long. But I think that red flag, orange flag is a nice little... I'm going to play off your metaphor and add that in there. Now, the cool thing, this is why I mentioned at the start of the show that you are possibly the best guest we can ever have, is because you've lived at this amazing level of performance. Not only have you done it athletically, you've done it in the arts as well. And at the same time, so you not only understand the mental requirements of performing at that level, at the same time you've been through, one of the other driving factors of this show is to help people deal with mental stress, pressure, things that could lead people down the wrong path or towards more pain, but if handled properly and, more importantly, if they seek the right support like your dad got you to do, then we can still have great lives and get through some tough stuff as well. You, having gone through what you've been through, turned into and are one of the more outspoken mental health advocates in sport, and it's a really cool passion that I applaud you for and it's been cool looking at some of your stuff how did that come to be like how did you decide not just because there are plenty of people who go through it and this is a great point I heard you make I think in a different interview where you said it's not just about saying this is the thing in sport like yeah no shit like it's a thing in society people have this thing but you didn't just have it and then get back to work you had it and it changed your focus like you're passionate about speaking out about this and educating why that step for you? Yeah, well, I think it's just shocking to me how uneducated and how unprepared I was for facing what I experienced based on my family history. It's like I should have been a kind of red flag candidate for what I went through. And that I was so unprepared means that anyone could be unprepared, I think. And I think once I realized how simple the vocabulary shifts were, but how profound I felt like it was really important to share whatever I could because those vocabulary shifts of seeing my brain as a body part of thinking about my actions first and and various other things were so epiphanal that I needed to share those things. And also I had an awareness that I have seen the very worst things I think a person might see someone do to themselves and what I've seen my mom do And I felt the very, like I was the highest risk depression you can be. So if anybody falls somewhere in between that, I feel that I can 
uniquely speak to them. And I remember, you know, when you asked at the beginning of this interview, I think that to be honest, like the most life-changing thing was accepting my brain as a body part, because when I see my brain as a body part, everything makes sense where, you know, a little rough feeling one day isn't an indication that I like need to turn myself into a hospital or see a doctor. Just like if my leg feels a little sore one day, it's like, all right, maybe it's a day off or like, it's, you know, you, you know what to do about it. And if it progresses, you know, it's like, it just made me completely take care of my mental health the way I would my physical health. And I've been trained for my entire life to take care of my body. And so for me, that was so epiphanal because I already knew how to do it. I just didn't realize it was the same thing. So I would say that that has been the number one vocabulary switch that I wish that people knew before. (laughs) I hope people know that if it helps them before they need to know that. I think that story right there is the best way to end this episode with a reminder that our brain really is a body part. And I hope it's clear to you after hearing all of these testimonials that the more prepared you are mentally, the more you've trained that body part, the faster you'll be able to not only adjust, but recover when life and the games demand it. And this is true not only for multiple Olympic champion Apollo Onos of the world, it applies to all of us. Whether you like it or not, everyone is going to have their share of negative feelings and traumatic experiences. That's one thing this show has made abundantly clear over the first season. And it's those who are mentally fit who are going to be able to quickly recognize when they're ruminating or stuck on bad things and even quicker to be able to disconnect so they can redirect their thoughts and emotions to the things that matter the most. We'll see you next week to go through one of the last pillars of toughness and that's personal power and action. But until then, stay tough. So what is it got to be so damn tough? Uh, excellent, bustle with the best of them.